Amen. You may be seated. Early on in church history, believers would gather together for what was called an agape meal or probably better known as a love feast. That sounds a little bit weird for us, at least it does for me, but it, I, I do think it sounds descriptive, though, of what happens whenever somebody gives me a box of hot Krispy Kreme donuts. Uh, I eat them, and it is indeed a love fest for, for, for me. But for the early believers, it was a little bit different. They didn't have Krispy Kreme. Instead, it, was, uh, it marked a time when they would come together, and they would break bread and share a meal with each other. And then at the end of that meal, um, they, would, they would observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, much like we are going to do at the end of our service uh, today. And uh, the reason that it was called a love feast is because it demonstrated, it was a, it was a picture of the love that the church had for one, another's, uh, one another uh, in, in really sharing a meal with each other. Then also it demonstrated the love that they had for Christ as they uh, would take of the bread and of the cup uh, it would signify they would think on all that Christ had accomplished on their behalf, especially in terms of their forgiveness and what they had been forgiven of by the work of Jesus Christ. And so in this particular text, at the end of chapter 7, we're finishing up this chapter, and all the events actually take place during a meal. And from the perspective of one woman, one sinful woman, this would have been called a love fest because the love that she had for Jesus but from the perspective of an unforgiven, really self-righteous Pharisee, this meal could have been deemed more of a meal of contempt because that's what he felt towards Jesus Christ. Those are two radically different experiences. Those are two radically different uh, ideals and responses to the grace of God. One is greater love. One is greater contentment. So what we want to do this morning in our time together before we take up the Lord's Supper is we want, want to take a look at these two kind of responses and really look at two specific truths that I think that are, and I think that you'll find are clear from the text of Scripture. The first is this, is let us be like Jesus by showing grace and mercy to sinners. Let us be like Jesus by showing grace and mercy to sinners. We pick up in verse 36, follow along if you will. The Bible says one of the Pharisees asked him, and he, him meaning Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. Now, we're not told by Luke or given any indication. Can I have the house lights up just a little bit? All I can see is bright lights. I don't see the beautiful faces of the people that I'm preaching to. Can we have a little bit of light? Oh, okay. No, turn that one down. Uh, just, I'm, I'm joking. Um, we're good. If we could just have a little bit. They are much better. I can actually see who I'm preaching to. That helps me a lot. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us exactly what the motivation was of this Pharisee when he invited Jesus to come and to be able to eat, eat a meal at his home. We might presume that it was sincere curiosity of knowing who Jesus was. Jesus was building and growing in popularity. Maybe he just wanted to know who this Jesus was and were the stories true about him. Or his motivation might have been a bit more sinister uh, certainly, it could have been that he had intended to find fault with Jesus in order to discredit him as a true prophet of God. And as we see the story begin to unfold, we find out that that is indeed most likely the motive behind him inviting Jesus into his home. But during this meal, at some point, we're not told when, all of a sudden something really extraordinary, something unexpected happens. We know this because Luke uses the phrase, and behold, 
When you use that, you usually use that to express something dynamic is going to happen. It's Luke's way of going, dun, dun, dun. And then for you to be able to go, oh, wow, something big is about to happen. And it does. The Bible says, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them uh, with the ointment. Now, there are so many things that are going on in this that would have been culturally taboo for the, for the time. It's hard to know even really where to begin and how to unpack this. So let's just begin with the woman herself. Uh, scholars go really beyond trying to figure out who exactly this woman was. And many have suggested that she was most likely Mary Magdalene, but there's nothing within the text that would suggest that that is true. Others have set, suggested that we know that at least the lady must have been a prostitute based on Luke's description of her being a woman of the city. And that seems to be most accurate. However, again, we can't be absolutely true that that's the case. The only thing that we know that is true is that this woman was a sinner. And by sinner, I don't mean that she just rebelled against God or did things that were in rebellion towards God. Her whole reputation was known for rebelling against God for everybody in her town. She was known as the biggest sinner around. She knew it, and everybody else knew it. And so when she comes in, the very fact that she would even enter into a Pharisee's house was scandalous enough. For her to be able to come in, nobody would have seen this happening. No self-expecting Pharisee would ask, or ask a woman or invite a woman like this to be able to come. So for her to be able to show up uninvited, that was even worse. So when she comes in and she, she goes to the feet of Jesus. Now understand how this works. It says she stood at the feet of Jesus. How do you do that? Well, he would have been reclining at table. That's the terminology there. Uh, it, you don't sit around a table. You, you would lie down. That sounds kind of nice. Kind of lie down while you're eating, resting on your left shoulder as you would eat. And your head would be near the table. Your feet would be uh, on the opposite direction. And so she came to his feet. And when she did, she was so overwhelmed with emotion, she just burst out in tears. And these tears began to roll down her, uh, her cheeks uh, to Jesus' feet. And at that point, she began to wipe those tears with her hair. And understand something, if you're talking scandalous, this was the picture of scandal. A woman in that day would have her hair covered. She wouldn't have it to be seen by other people. It would need to be covered. And if she would expose that hair, uh, it would give right, according to the Talmud, it would give that husband actually a right to divorce her husband because she had exposed her hair in public. A lot of you would be divorced today because I see a whole lot of head hair. And so, but in the case, this is what was going on. So people were all appalled with everything that they were seeing. And then it was even unusual. Yes, people would anoint somebody's head with oil as they entered into their home, but this was different. She takes a very expensive flask, an uh, alabaster jar of, of ointment and perfume, and she begins to anoint his feet while she's kissing those feet simultaneously. So here's the idea. You were walking into a situation where everybody in the room is aghast, is appalled, is disgusted by what is ultimately going on. And by what everybody in the room is frowning upon is actually this woman's demonstration of this extraordinary, extravagant love that she has for Jesus Christ. 
What would give her such boldness to be able to come to this man, to this teacher in the midst of a Pharisee's home and to be able to do what many people would view as being culturally wrong to, to, to do and take part in all of these things? One reason and one reason alone is because she knew that Jesus was a friend of sinners. She knew that he was the one person in the entire town that would show her grace and mercy. Yes, guys were nice to her, but only when they wanted to use and abuse her. But she wanted and she needed to be able to come to somebody who would be welcoming to her and to be able to receive her with grace and mercy. And that's what she found in Jesus Christ. That's why she does what she ends up doing in this particular passage. Now, her response stands in stark contrast to the Pharisee. We pick up again and note in verse 39, it says, Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So here he responds in typical Pharisee fashion, right? He responds with this critical judgmentalism, thinking the absolute worst of this woman. And it was true, she was a sinner, no doubt about it. But when he begins to look at her, he's so disgusted with her and her sin. That, and we know that by the phrase that he uses, what sort of woman is this? He, he, he's repulsed by her. And, and, and you can understand that what he does is he actually puts her in, her, in, in a category all to herself and, and basically calls her a sinner. Meaning, understand, read through that, read through the lines. He's saying she's a sinner, which is indicating he is not. She's sinful, and I'm righteous. We don't need to be together. These are two completely different groups of humanity. And so when she comes, she shows this attitude of love towards Jesus. And this man now has a, a sense of, content, or, 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 of, of hatred almost, contention with Jesus Christ, because she's receiving this particular woman to himself. And so he, she begins to believe very quickly that he can't possibly be a man of God. Why? Because God has nothing to do with sinners. And so if you're going to be a godly man, then you wouldn't be around sinners either. So it brings up this simple question, how is it that we see God? How do we see God in his heart towards sinners? Now, this is a complex theological question. And the reason is because sometimes you read that God hates the wicked, and then other times you see that he loves them. So it's very complex when we begin to put it together. But what is his predisposition? Yes, we know that he is holy and he can't be in the presence of sin. But is his heart against people or is it for people? That's the question. And the answer right here we see is it is for people, even sinners. And so the question is, do we view people, sinners, people who don't know Jesus Christ, do we see them through the lenses of this woman uh, do we see Jesus through the lenses of this woman that he is receptive and loving and merciful and gracious? Or do we see through the lenses of the Pharisee who ultimately is, is repulsed in alienating those who are sinners? How do we see that? Now, we know if we were taking a test this morning, all of you have been in church long enough, you know how to answer that question. He's merciful and he's gracious. That's, that's what it is. That's, that's the right answer, right, Pastor Mike? Yes, that's the right answer. But really to know what you truly believe about God is, is dependent not about what you say or how you answer that verbally, but instead is how you and I receive those who are sinners. How we respond to them, how we speak to them. One author says it this way, 
what we may say about them, meaning people who don't believe as we believe, how we treat them and what we do or fail to do to touch their lives with the love of Jesus Christ indicates our true understanding of God and his grace. Sadly, there are many Christians who refuse to get involved in the lives of people who are in spiritual trouble. They do not touch sinners and they do not let sinners touch them. There is this kind of tension, isn't it, as a believer in the world in which we live? We want to be set apart. We don't love sin. Let me tell you three things that I, I think is true for many believers. Maybe you came to faith in Jesus Christ much later in your life, and you lived a whole life of sin, not meaning that you were any more sinful than any of us that got saved when we were seven years old, right? All of sin falls short of the glory of God, worthy of the wrath of God. But what we see in the passage is, is this a is, or what we see in the word of God is that oftentimes, or in, at least in our, in our experiences, oftentimes because God has taken us out of that, we don't want to be near that anymore. He took us out of certain experiences, away from certain types of people, away from certain types of groups. And now because of what that reminds us of, it reminds us of our rebellion towards God. We want to stay clear of it. Anybody, anybody experience that same thing? Uh, then there were some who, who, who experienced maybe something a little bit different uh, they understand that it's sinful, and they still have those fleshly inclinations within them. They know that they are susceptible to sin, and they know they can easily fall for it. So the reason that they stay away from all of that and don't want to take part in it is not only because it reminds them of their sin, but they're afraid they're going to fall into that same sin they did before. So they want to stay far away. And then, of course, there is always the, the concern about maybe our own witness. Maybe there's a concern for a weaker brother in Jesus Christ where... If we do something, will we be in the appearance of sin? If we go a certain place, if we, if we hang out with a particular group of people, will, will they look at us and they'll begin to stumble because they think that we're taking part in some kind of sinful activity? All of those things are legitimate feelings, ideas. We experience those things. But let me suggest this. We, you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, at least the challenge for us is to embrace love that shuns evil without shunning sinners. The challenge for us is always to embrace a love that shuns evil without shunning sinners, and that's difficult to do. We are in the world, not of the world. We get it. We have our Christian friends. We come together at church. We love that. And then we, we know somebody who has a reputation who is sinful. Maybe they sleep around a little bit. Everybody knows it. Look, even other lost people condemn them. They're like, bro, you don't want to be around them. Uh, they, they are sexually per, uh, promiscuous. Bro, they, they just have a bad reputation. You, you don't want to be with them. They're the very type of people that you and I should be engaging in relationship with. When a moving truck moves in and, and the whole buzz around the neighborhood is that the homosexual family is moving in, and everybody's just sister says, I'm a pole. What are we going to do with our children? How, how, how are we going to explain this? You should be the very ones who go over and begin to move them in. The reason we're so afraid of it is we think that engaging people in love is engaging and affirming their sin, and it's not. If it was, Jesus would be guilty of sin. His death on the cross would not do you any good or me any good. You and I have got to find a way to be able to come and to make sure that the people around us, they know how much we hate and are repulsed by sin because it is, in, 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 it is against our God 
However, they must never feel as though they themselves are repugnant or they repulse us. You and I must be people who show a, an extraordinary type of mercy and grace. Why? Because it's the way that Jesus Christ, the one whom we follow, treated us, you and I. If you're trying to find out who you are in the story, you're not Jesus. You and I are who? The woman. We're the sinners who have been saved by Jesus Christ. He was a friend of sinners. He extended grace and mercy. You and I ought to do the same. If you and I spend all of our lives building friendships and welcoming only those who have it all together, what are we conveying to a lost world? Because you and I are representatives of Jesus Christ, we are Christians, we are little Christ, not understand what that means. We represent him. That if we all we ever do is want to be around that those who have it together, who speak right, who, who, who seem to be living righteous lives. And that's a good thing, by the way. That's a part of being a part of a body of Christ and edifying and building each other up. But if that's the only friendships we ever have, and we completely step away and don't want to have anything to do with people who are sinners within this world, what does it convey? It conveys that God is not a God of mercy and grace, but rather he only accepts the righteous of which there are none. And then we have a problem. So what are we to do? Number one, I think the first thing is let us be like Jesus by showing grace and mercy to the sinners who are around us. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, by the way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we are now saints, it is only because of the work, the completed work of Jesus Christ, not based on anything you and I have done ourselves. Number two, let us, hey, we're halfway done. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? All right, halfway done. Some of you are like, yes. All right, number two, let us show extravagant love towards Jesus as we are reminded of our sins forgiven. Sounds weird. I know it's written weird. Uh, Nick beforehand was like, are you sure this is grammatically correct? No, I'm not sure. But I think it's the point of the text. Let us show extravagant love towards Jesus as we are reminded of our sins forgiven. Reason, note this, at this particular point, the Pharisee doesn't, doesn't think that Jesus is a prophet. How could he be a prophet when he didn't know what kind of woman this was? And not only did he not know the woman he was, if, if, she, if he did, he wouldn't have anything ultimately to do with her at all. And so here, what Jesus is gonna demonstrate is that he did know this woman, he knew her well. And not only that, he knew this man. Remember up to this point, this man was having thoughts of Jesus, but he never spoke his opinion of Jesus. So Jesus shows that he's greater than a prophet. He's, after God. he's actually God. Why? Because only God knows the intentions of the heart. He knows his thoughts. So he's going to expose it in verse 40. Notice what he says. And Jesus answering said to, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which which of them will love him more? Now, Jesus wasn't, was, was teaching a, print, a, a parable here. Sometimes his parables are really confusing. Sometimes they're just hard to understand what they mean. This is not one of them. It's not hard to know what Jesus is getting out. He just, he just makes it very simple. It's self-evident. He just says there's two guys that have debt. We understand what debt is, right? I do. You may not, but they, they have debt. One had one 50 denarii, the other 500 denarii. One is much larger than the other, 10 times as much. And he says, look, if a servant comes or a master comes and he sees that neither one of them can pay their debt, 
And so he just forgives them graciously, mercifully, just forgives them of their debt. He goes, now, who is going to love the more? And, and the, again, the answer, he gets the answer right because, again, it's self-evident. He said, the one, I suppose, for whom has canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. So at this particular point, what we realize is that once he gets him to know that, now he draws his attention back to the woman again. It says, then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? What a, what a crazy question. Of course he sees this woman. He saw her from the moment she walked into his house and he was horrified by her. But what Jesus is pointing out is he doesn't see her the way that Jesus sees her. See, self-righteous people, when you're self-righteous and I'm self-righteous, we always see people at their worst. We always see people who they used to be. We never see them for who they are or who they have the potential to be in the person of Jesus Christ. So this man sees this wicked woman. He wants, to see, he wants him to see something completely different about her. So at this point, we understand that Jesus in this parable is not talking about monetary debt, is he? No, he's talking about a sin debt. And this woman has a lot of it. And so what he begins to tell her is, the reason that she loves so much is simply this, is because she has been forgiven so much. And Simon, the reason that you love so little is because you have been forgiven so little, or more accurately, zero. You have no love because you've received no forgiveness. And then he says, and then this is clear because the way that both of you have acted. Understand that. You have not been forgiven. Therefore, it's, it's, it's demonstrated the way that you've acted towards me. She has been forgiven. Therefore, it is evident in the way that she has acted towards me. This is what he says. He says, I entered in your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she was wet. She, she had wet uh, my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with ointment. Therefore, I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. During that day, it was only right. It was basic cultural hospitality that when a person walked through your front door, you would do three things. Number one, you'd kiss him on the cheek. This is pre-COVID by the way. You'd kiss him on the cheek. You'd kiss him on the neck. That's weird, but that's what they did. Uh, then immediately afterwards, a servant would come and wash the feet. And then after that, you would anoint the person's head with oil. So these are things, these were just basic things that people did for every guest who came over. This man showing his contentment or his, his discontentment with Jesus, what does he do? He invites him in. He does none of those things for this man. And he says, look, you didn't show any love, any grace for me. This lady did it, but she took it to a whole nother level. When I went into your home, it's not even her home. She's the one who treated me as a, as a true, true guest. She's the one who, who washed my feet with her tears and then wiped it with her hair. She is the one who kept kissing my feet. She was the one who kept anointing me, but not even my head, of my feet. And the reason for this is all of this is an expression of her worship and her love and her gratitude towards me because of her forgiveness. Now, I wanna point something out to you for a moment that I think is important. Maybe we have some some ex-Catholics here, or maybe you're Catholic, I don't know. We seem to have a lot of, of former Catholics come to our church. And so I, I wanna note this, not specifically for you, but for all of us, 
And that is that Roman Catholics and Catholic theologians often use this passage to be able to argue that a person is not saved by grace through faith alone, but rather by grace through faith plus our works. And then what they do is they allude to the wording here. Look, look at the wording again. Jesus said, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But, who is for, but he who is forgiven little loves little, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So they point to this and they say, see, right there, we understand that there's no doubt that he forgave her sins because of what she did for him. But there's three reasons why that can't possibly be the interpretation of the text. Let me give this to you in close. Number one is because none of the Bible teaches that we are saved through our works. Would you agree? All right, so we, we begin with the book of Genesis. We get to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, uh, the, 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 the woman blows it for all humanity. Do you remember that, guys? Way back in the garden, she falls, just kidding. Uh, man wasn't leading in the way that he should. So they fall, all of humanity is cursed. What do they instantly wanna do? They know they need to be covered. They go and they take, they take vines and, and everything, fig leaves, and they begin to sew them together to try to cover themselves up. God says, you cannot cover yourself. He goes, only I can cover your sin. What does he do? He sacrifices animals in which he takes the skins and then he clothes them. He's in essence saying, you can never clothe yourself in righteousness. Only I on my work at the behalf and the life of another can you ultimately be covered and acceptable. And then he gives them all of these laws. And so in the Old Testament, in the, in the, in the temple rules and laws, what would we see? We see literally millions of animals being slain all the time throughout uh, th thousands of years of history. We see this going on over and over and over and over again. And, and, and yet the people are still finding themselves in the sin. And then later we find out that it wasn't covering their sin at all. It, was, it wasn't satisfying the wrath of God at all. It was, it was appeasing that wrath for a time, but it wasn't taking it ultimately away. And so we get into the New Testament and we find out that Jesus Christ was in fact the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. It was Jesus who would die on their behalf, not through any works that they would do. Then we get to the book of Ephesians, and I don't know how you can more clearly state this. You get to the book of Ephesians and it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of works, right? Not of works. It's not of your works. It's by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Then the Catholic theologian will step up and go, but what about the book of James that says that faith without works is dead? And then we understand that that has to be interpreted in light of the rest of Scripture. And so what do we understand James to say? James wasn't saying that you weren't saved by grace through faith alone. He was saying if you were saved by grace through faith alone, then your life is going to be radically different and you're going to show fruit which is consistent of true salvation, which is ultimately going to be modeled by what? Your love for Jesus Christ. It's exactly what's going on here. This woman did not save, was not saved by her own works because the Bible doesn't allow us to be able to go there. There's a second thing, and let me give you the second reason why it can't possibly mean that. Second, what we find here is that the, 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 the verb tense that we find within the text of Scripture for forgiven is in the perfect tense. And this might be a little bit technical for you, but all it means is that her forgiveness happened sometime in the past, and now the impact of that forgiveness is now following her onto the future, even to this particular point. So what we find is this woman wasn't being saved then. She had already been born again. 
At some other time, she had heard the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ preaching. She came to faith, placed his faith in him, and then what ultimately happened? Now, we're just seeing the reverberations and the outcome and the, and the fruit, which is consistent with salvation, which, again, is her love for Jesus Christ. And there's a third reason why this can't possibly mean uh, that she was earning her salvation, and it makes no sense within the context at all. Remember the parable. Remember the, the, the whole point of the parable? The whole point of the parable was this, was the idea, he said, now which one of them love him more? Simon said, I suppose the one whom he canceled the larger debt. The debt was canceled. And based on the canceling of the debt comes the what? Comes the love. And so what we find is this is a reminder of at least three things to me. I did say that I was going to finish with the last three things. Forgive me, I lied. There's three more things, and let me just give this to you just very quickly. I forgot. Anyway, number one, why is it important? There have been times that we've talked about sin. Did you? One of the biggest complaints that I've heard, and you've heard many more complaints than this, but let me just tell you, one of the biggest complaints is Mercy Hill talks way too much about sin. Okay, well, let me defend myself, okay, if we can. Okay. The Bible uses the word sin more than 400 times throughout it. If you're going to preach the text, you're eventually going to talk about sin. Amen? It's going to be there. But let me give you just a couple reasons why I think this is so incredibly important. Without understanding our condition and our sinful condition before God, nobody will ever cry out for grace and mercy to God unless they know and see themselves as a sinner. Would you agree? So sin must be, we must understand that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Number two, it is a reminder to believers that we are still in need of progressive sanctification. So it's not as though we were born again and now we're perfect just like Christ. We are in standing. We have been declared righteous before him. But how many of you would still say you are wrestling every single day with the sin that remains in our flesh to become more like the person of Jesus Christ? So it reminds us as we come in, guess what? The work is not done. It is completed in Jesus Christ, but the practical outworking of that is happening every day as you and I to learn to be able to beat this sinful flesh into submission to who we truly are. And then there is a third reason, and I think that this is what is declared most clearly within the text of Scripture. It causes our affections to be stirred when we are reminded of the forgiveness that we have received. The people who love Jesus the most are always gonna be the people who understand just to what lengths Christ has gone and to what lengths he has forgiven us of our sins. The moment you and I forget of all the sin that has been forgiven and continues to be forgiven each and every day is when you and I become self-righteous it's when you and I stand as though we think that we're in a different category than what other sinners are. It's when you and I stop embracing those who, are li- those who need the same gospel that you and I. And it also impacts the way that we live our lives unto God. This lady was showing an extravagant love, not because it made her saved, but because she was already saved. She gave all that she could to Jesus Christ. When you and I begin to stumble in our, look, this is gonna sound really old school. Here it is. And it's hard for me to be able to share this because some of you are gonna be like, that's legalism. But just grant me. We've just talked about grace all this this time and we're gonna continue. But listen, 
when you and I, when we understand what we've been forgiven and our love for God is stirred and it is impassioned for him all the more, do we not want to give our all to him? Do we not want to gather together on a consistent basis and sing corporately praises to God? Do we not all the more want to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do we not all the more want to give not God our leftovers, but to give him our very best, to go over and above in great sacrifice? Why? Because whatever sacrifice we made, it is not worthy to be compared to the sacrifice that was made on our behalf through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what we do is we look and we understand that when we are gripped by this, we will love like this to those, those who are forgiven most. And by the way, it's not as though there are different categories of people who have been forgiven for more sin. And then here's the category of people who are forgiven in less sin. And if you're thinking to yourself, the reason I don't love him as much is because he hasn't been, he hasn't had to forgive me for much. You're missing the entire point. All have fallen short of the glory of God. He has forgiven all of us from more sins than we can ever imagine, that we can ever think of. But here's the idea. The idea is there are just people in their pride that think that they have been forgiven less. And that's unbiblical, and it will impede our love for him. Let me ask you this. Do you know Christ this morning? Do you know him? Have you come to understand your sin? Have you repented of sin? Have you placed your faith, not in yourself, not in your working, not your being here, not your giving, not your serving, but totally in the fact that he died, he paid it all, he met a debt that you could not pay. Have you placed your faith in that completed work this morning? I pray that you have. And if you have, revel in your forgiveness of the sins that he has forgiven past, present, and future, and let your and my love flourish all the more for him. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for this morning. We have very few, very little bit of time left, but God, we thank you for your time in the word. Thank you, God, for you forgiving us. Let us never forget it. And now in the few moments that we have, let us respond to you. God, as we even have an invitation just to be able to reflect on the word, Lord, there is a call for those who don't know you. Maybe they need the gospel explained to them more clearly. Maybe you're calling them, drawing them. We know that you can save them right where they are. If they'll just call out to you, God, in the same way, we also know that there are people who are hurting. There are people who are in broken marriages. A lot of different things that were ultimately going on. But God, we can still revel in the fact that we've been forgiven by you. Lord, help us to respond in light of it. In Jesus' name we pray.